0: Welcome back to Africa is a Country Talk. My name is William Shorkey, and you are listening to Africa is a Country's weekly talk and interview show. Subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tell us what you think, give us feedback. We appreciate it all. And importantly, check out africasacountry.com for new analysis on current affairs on the continent from a left-wing perspective. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on YouTube, we're on Instagram, Give us a follow. So, on today's program, I'll be playing two interviews that I conducted. The first one is with Mohamed Sabey, who is from the General Industries Workers Union of South Africa, and I spoke to him about an ongoing strike that's happening here against a dairy giant called Clover, which was recently taken over by an Israeli company called Central Bottling Company, which also operates in the occupied territories in palestine so it's an issue where there is overlap between worker solidarity and palestinian solidarity and then i spoke to naim jina from the afro middle east center which is based here in johannesburg and the conversation we had was about the recent maneuvers by israel to try and get accreditation on the african union and the various controversies that has sparked as well as asking how come it is the case that continental solidarity with Palestine is so weak at the moment so enjoy both interviews here they are now if you have been paying attention to happenings in South Africa you might have noticed that since November of 2021 workers at Clover which is a popular South African dairy company have been striking against the organization the roots of the strike have to do with the 2019 acquisition of Clover by an Israeli company called Central Bottling Company and the agenda of austerity that it has been implementing since then. So joining us on the program to talk about the strike further, to understand where things are at, is Mamet Loesa who's the president of the General Industries Workers Union of South Africa, as well as a national committee member of the Workers and Socialist Party, which is the South African affiliate of the International Socialist Alternative, which is a revolutionary Marxist organization organizing workers, young people, and socialists in more than 30 countries. Sabay was formerly the national coordinator of the Outsourcing Must Fall movement in 2016, as well as in the 2012 National Mine Workers Strike Committee and was formerly president of the Pan-Africanist student movement of Azania before that. So Mamet, thank you so much for for coming onto the program. Thank you and thank you to your listeners um, for this opportunity. So maybe we could just begin by understanding the origins of the strike. Now, this all started in 2019 when CBC, which is the central bottling company and Israeli firm took over Clover through a consortium, where it was the largest shareholder. This consortium is is Mulco, and I think the formerly the for the official subsidiary uh, through which it functions in South Africa. So, could you tell us a little bit about that takeover and how it happened?
1: Yes, I mean that was obviously amongst one of the triggers, and I'll speak about that in a matter of a second. But uh, the causes are much deeper than that, mm-hmm. and, and I think the root cause of it is a deepening crisis of capitalism, the crisis in the economy, which you can see, it goes more than a decade, you know, with a great recession of 2008, 2009, but also a crisis of climate change, because this company was hit west by the drought that engulfed um, a big part of the country for about five years until probably this year and last year, when we have seen a better rain and so on. Now, as you would know, one of the tendencies you know, of capitalism is that in a period of crisis, there is consolidation of capital mm. and what we yeah. see is of course big companies taking over um, smaller companies and what we are dealing with here is a multinational company a central bottling company that is Israeli owned um you know creating a consortium Melcom um with the partners to rate um you know clover um i think they paid um four point something billion in that transaction, if I'm not mistaken, and obviously that was linked with a promise of restructuring um, with a brutal consequences um, for workers, for their families, for their communities in order to secure a higher rate of profitability. Now we were always aware that um, part of the negotiation for takeover um, was that brutal restructuring uh, and austerity measures for the workers, um, yeah. which was a basis of objection. Um, but also the fact that um, we are, as workers' movement, committed to the question of Palestine. Um, you know, the issue, the question of working-class solidarity um, is not, it's not as no for us. It's a matter of absolute and vital principle and foundation of our movement. We cannot stand idle when the people of Palestine have been dispossessed of their land, have been displaced from her- their home, are subjected to a most brutal colonial military occupation over decades without an end. And therefore, we said this company, which um, is operating on occupied Palestinian territories, um, that is linked with um, far right parties that uh, are funding and organizing illegal Jewish settlements on Palestinian land, cannot be allowed to operate here with impunity. Mm. And that's the reason that we also objected to this take over on the basis Of working class solidarity and our commitment to international support um, towards the oppressed people of Palestine. Now, government supported the measure. They said um, this measure is, you know, is part of the investment drive by the president. You know that he announced a target of about 1.4 trillion uh, in investment that he targeted um, over a period of five years. Um, But also they said this is going to create jobs. Now, we, we, we presented all evidence of that, that part of the negotiations for the takeover is this package of restructuring. Now, government is going to tell you, or Trova is going to tell you that they had what you call projects in Silo, which was a project of restructuring before the merger. Mm. But what I will not tell you is that um, the very reason that they embarked on the process of restructuring was to make Clover, you know, profitable in a way that will attract this sort of investment mm. and therefore restructuring, though it precedes the merger, it was very integral uh, to take over itself. And that was a base of our objection. Mm. We said they're going to destroy jobs. We said they're going to lower conditions of our members. Um, and the government said no such thing is going to happen. In fact, they promised to create about 500 jobs through what they call a Project Masakani. Mm. Now. Two years, um all of that, right? Less than two years actually, because um the takeover was in in, in October twenty nineteen.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: By now, about um, over one thousand jobs were lost. If it was not for the strike, we're looking at two thousand job losses in this round of, of, of restructuring.
0: Mm. And how how has has Clover Tried to rationalise this restructuring. So, despite the fact that it came here promising jobs, promising these programs which were supposed to generate those jobs, how is it justifying the restructuring? Well,
1: their argument is that um, there are competitors, and you know the biggest of which is a French-owned Parmalat, and is operating one mega facility in the country, and they've mentioned others, including I think dairy. Farmers, I think uh, is, is a company that we organized and um, that was actually part of Clover mm. and um, it was an entity created by Clover as a way of maneuvering what remained of the farmers out of Clover. I mean, what people do not know is that Clover for about 100 years, it operated as farmers cooperative. It was taken by corporation, big corporations only recently. In the past 20 years, they've listed a stock exchange only in the past 10 years. And ever since that time, it has been nothing short of an absolute catastrophe um, for the workers, for the economy, for many small towns that are dependent on on clover for their manufacturing. So the way that they are regionalizing is that they've got to cut the cost um, so that they can be able to compete. Now, when you follow their logic, firstly, um, Pamela does not have the same location in the market as, as Clover, which is well established. Um, it is infrastructure that Pamela simply does not have. Secondly, is the fact that, um, um, you know, what they are saying is that they want to reach the wages of, 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 you know, of, of Pamela. Parmalad, I'm told, at least from what we're hearing from Clover, they are paying their workers about 5,400. Now, if we're to allow that race to the bottom, right? They want to cut the wages of our members by 20%. Uh, and they are saying, even with that cut, they will still be way above those of Pamela. What it means is that if we allow this 20% cut in wages, they will actually have to hold um, the wages of our members for years to come
2: yeah. in
1: order for Pamela to catch up. But that is provided that Pamela does a uh, race catch up, which is not likely by the way. What Pamela is going to do is actually going to cut conditions of their workers um, and vary them downward. And what you are going to end up with, uh, having is a system basically of slavery. where you know, Pamela cut down to avoid competition from Clover and Clover cut down to avoid competition from Pumalat. And what do you end up with? Workers earning 1,500, 2,000, Something that is not unheard of in an economy like ours. So this is a typical class bookcase of a colonial slavery and exploitation that we have seen from these multinational takeovers and multinational, you know, um, uh, companies that are raiding South African assets, which I think have been devalued, particularly by the economic crisis, but also the downgrading that we have seen by major credit rating agencies, and they are up for taking. And what government call foreign investment is actually devastation of local industries by big uh, big multinationals that aren't creating jobs, that aren't creating factories. If anything, they are decimating what remains of the manufacturing in this country.
0: Mm, That's been a trend recently, right? As you said, government opening our borders to multinational companies to take over local industry, whether it's in supermarkets, or alcohol production. Could you talk a little bit more about how this has, especially under the Ramaphosa government, become the vision of development that they're trying to articulate versus what workers are pushing now, which is for inclusive growth development, bolstering our local manufacturing sector, job creation and the like, and how that's sort of coming out of loggerheads during the strike. Yeah, we've got to face the fact. I mean, many people in media like playing the
1: fact that these are former trade unionists. Right Now, <laughs> the trade unionists that we knew in the 80s and that many um, of us had grown to love at that time and many workers um, considered their hero, that is long gone and that is long dead. What you have in office today is a billionaire president for the billionaire class mm. in this country. And I think we have got to start from there that the election of Ramaphosa was further right to shift in the sense that what the capitalists seek is, um, you know, their representative, uh, the one of their own, who is clear that what he wants is more, you know, um, foreign investment driven growth um, that is opening South Africa for business um, at a total disregard. Flagrant disregard for what protections are there for the workers. That is the reason that we have had, um, you know, a dismantling of a hard-won labor rights for the workers. The right to strike has been under attack for some time now, and I think that process has been completed under his tenure as a president. And that is indicative that we are not having a former trade unionist in office; we are having a billionaire president. Mm -hmm. Now, um, you also. You know, when he took over, he went on a drive for foreign direct investment. Now the question is, what is he promising them, right? I, you know, I'm a president of the union because I'm the shop steward at Lawyers for Human Rights and my day work is actually representing mining affected communities uh, as lawyers. And I can tell you that um, what they've done is that they've opened, um, you know, the country for a colonial style land dispossession um, of communities affected by mining. Um, the land dispossession that are rem- uh, reminiscent of uh, a 19th century type of colonialism uh, that we have not seen in modern century in this country. Now, that is what we are seeing in anything and so on. And I think what is indicative of is the fact that the working class has no part of their own in the ANC. The working class need a party of their own. And that party has to be created by the workers' movement, by communities, and, and so on, because that is the only instrument that we can forge to make sure that we take power into our own hands, but not just political power. We need economic power. And the only way to go about that is by making sure that we expropriate the capitalist, by nationalizing the banks, the mines, the factories, uh, the farms, and to take those under a democratic control and management of the working class. Through workers committees through representative of communities in the both of this martin uh, in the both of these com- uh, major cooperations and to make sure that economy and the vast wealth in it is put at the disposal of the working class to resolve the crisis of unemployment of housing of public services such as education health, and to build a much and disparately needed infrastructure in the country as well as solving all the problems that yeah. have left our people in horrendous conditions of life in many of informal settlements, in many rural areas, but also in many black townships in this
0: country. Mm. You spoke just now about part of a a program for for working class renewal has to be putting uh, firms and corporations under democratic and worker control. That's been one of the demands during the strike. So could you talk a little bit about that demand, how it's envisioned that Clover can be restructured to be controlled by workers, as well as what are some of the other demands that are circulating as as workers continue to strike?
1: Now, we have raised the issue of nationalization of of, of Clover um, and another democratic, you know, workers management and control, as you correctly pointed out. And many people have said, well, you are being ideological when there's a very disparate situation. But I think it's important to Mm. point how that demand flow from the very from the logic of the crisis in Clover itself, right? You know, we had a meeting um, with a a CEO of Clover and it was very instructive that he actually drew the same conclusion as ourselves, obviously from a different class point of view. And that was before he was given, you know, a loan of 107 million. And he pointed out that the crisis in Clover, which as I've said, it has multiple causes, right? The deepening crisis in the economy, because one of the issues that we're not talking about Is a deepening poverty of the black working class which is obviously undermining the market for clover and amongst others the crisis of climate change the 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 recurrent drought and other disasters that are obviously hitting a food manufacturing in this country all of that is the crisis at the root of the problems that we are facing in clover and so on now the point that i think he you know he made is that in this situation the only investor that will be aligned to our interests, which is to save jobs, which is to save the manufacturing industries, is actually uh, the state. Um, And and that he himself has been chasing after the Minister of Trade and Industry. Now, whether it's true or not, is immaterial. What is material is the fact that even he recognized that only public ownership in this instance is the only kind of investment that we need to be able to make sure that we maintain the biggest chess factory at uh, Lechtenberg that um we preserve the jobs that we are having in clover but also to make sure that we retain the conditions of workers um in the state where they are if not i mean i mean I mean, just i mean to, 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 um, to be able to improve them over and above that avoiding uh, the worst of the restructuring that we're having and, and the reason is very simple right mm. um the the the, the 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 any form of investment that you are having in this period is not investment for the purpose of growth. Capitalists don't invest to create jobs, don't invest to grow the economy. Capitalists invest because they can make profit, right? Now, when the market uh, is flooded because of overproduction and overcapacity, which is a problem in every sector of the economy in this country, but actually across the world as well, right? The crisis that you find in the steel manufacturing which has seen, I mean, the second, I mean, biggest steel manufacturer, Highveld, I mean, you know, a Highveld uh, steel, you know, going into business rescue and been taken over by the biggest uh, steel manufacturer, which is Aslo Metal, which itself, I think, few years ago, lost over ninety-six percent of their value from sixty um, from sixty billion rand to about five point six billion worth in terms of value and so on, and the basis mm-hmm. for that is a dumping of steel from China, um, which so the price of the ton of uh, steel um, being worth more than a ton of cabbage uh, in Shanghai Stock Exchange and so on. And I'm just giving an example of what you see in so far as as the steel manufacturing, but we have the same situation. I mean, when you see now, you will see that um, one of the biggest problem is, um, you know, a dumping of uh, cheap imports on the in the butter markets as mm. well and so on so I can go on and on to 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 demonstrate that uh there is a real crisis nobody denies that right Let's so ourselves and what we're saying is that what this what then this indicate is that we have we have a choice between job losses which have already reached um you know astronomical levels mm. of 12.5 million in the country the deepening levels of poverty that affects over half of the population and of course you know the fact that the state will have to carry the burden of what you call the working poor many of these workers are staying in shacks. when you cut their salaries what do you say because you know a shack is the lowest level of housing that we have in this country should they stay in caves should they go into holes what alternative do you have all that you're going to end up having is a situation wherein these workers are prolonging or lengthening the queue for public housing so instead of prioritizing the unemployed and those people in you know a, a very small companies uh, for housing you end up now having to subsidize companies big companies like Clover uh, in terms of public housing some of them I can tell you this uh, openly that um they are you know is fathers who can even acknowledge their own children a uh, part of their own children so that you know, their wives, their partners can claim social grants to subsidize um, their, their cost of living. That is a stream that we have. So, mm. the, the issue of public ownership flow from the logic of the situation and the crisis itself that any other investor would want to know, how is Clover going to be cutting the cost? And the consequences of it is what is playing out, mm. right? Mm. Uh, in the form of, you know, um, decimation of industrial capacity in small towns that are already having a very fragile economic base. i mean what you are going to see right, in Hebron, mm-hmm. uh comfort but also just in 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 that small town that um is lifting back i mean some of your colleagues have done research there and i mean they are the information is available uh, on the internet if you do search that shows that it's not just now um you know the cheese factory that is closing But because of the closure, a lot of farmers in Lechtenberg are picking up and when they up their farm because there is simply no entity that can absorb the gallons of, you know, milk that they produce other than uh, the chief factory um, Mm -hmm. and and of course, clover there and so on. So the consequences are going to be devastating. Mm -hmm. So the issue of public ownership emanates from that. But also Mm -hmm. the issue of workers' control, right? Just on that point, uh, as I summarized is that you see what is happening in state-owned entities that public ownership on the basis of capitalism what does it do it becomes you know a service to big cooperation to entrepreneurs that are accumulating at expense of state-owned entities like escom and so on and therefore the alternative to that is putting these companies under a democratic control of workers who are interested in the preservation of jobs in their own conditions uh, as well as making sure that they are able to provide you know a, a cheap dairy products to their communities who are suffering you know poverty and hunger in this country and of course ensuring that the boards are also representative of those communities so the issue of nationalization under democratic control and management flow from the very logic of the cast in clover but the cast in the economy as a whole and that's mm-hmm. the reason why we are saying clover can only be the beginning mm-hmm. To be extended to other branches and particularly all the key sectors of the economy, so that we are able to have a different economic system uh, with a different um, planning where all the vast resources in the economy can be harnessed and be put at the disposal of society to resolve all the crises that I've mentioned.
0: Is the South African government mindful of this? Because you mentioned two important things one is public ownership but two, public ownership on the model of democratic workers' control. And as you have been negotiating with them, have they been cognizant of this? Because if we judge from, for example, President Ramaphosa's State of the Nation address, I think two things stand out from that. The first is that pre-existing state-owned enterprises are only going to be further bureaucratized. There was talk of creating holding companies, state-owned holding companies that would be responsible for administering state-owned enterprises. And the second thing is he made further overtures to capital by saying, making this big acknowledgement that a lot of the South African media is just eating up in saying that uh, it's the responsibility of the private sector to generate jobs in this country. So it seems that the trend is moving further and further away from from sense, basically, uh, towards this this, this doubling down from from the state and capital uh, away from what you're saying which is uh, realizing the importance of, of public ownership so in negotiations with the Department of Trade and Industry with representatives from the state what have they been saying
1: no they have you know absolutely stated that they were not nationalized so, uh, they will not expropriated they don't think that the current legal framework allows them to do that now let me speak to that uh, as a matter of sec- in a matter of seconds right. As I said to you, um, I work, you know, I represent a mining affected community Mm. as a lawyer, lawyer, right? And uh, I can tell you, every time we negotiate for mining affected communities, government is always holding, you know, a threat of expropriation over our head. Now, what does that tell you? This is a government that is prepared to expropriate at the behest of multinationals, people that have been expropriated for 300 years of colonialism in this country right and they justify that on the basis of economic development and they need to create jobs but if that is a criteria why not do it in a situation of mm-hmm. clover that calls out for that right mm-hmm. so what it shows you is that this is a government in the service right of imperialism and by that I mean multinational corporations, but also their South African counterparts as well right so ANC is not the friends of the working class. The ANC is not biased towards the working class and so on. The ANC we must recognize it for what it is, is the brutal anti-working class party that for that matter is drowned in blood, Um, the mine workers in 2012 in defense of this interest. If that is not clarified uh, where their class and political loyalty lies, this speech that was delivered by the president uh, about a few days ago, itself has to be another clarification for those that are still unclear, because what the president at least has done and assisted us is to shed all the pretence of, you know, the whole uh, historical, you know, gibberish that they call a developmental state, that the state is going to stay out of the economy, that um, all that it has to do is to facilitate, you know, um, private investors to drive the economy and go forward and so on. Now, I have never entertained any illusions um, on what they call the uh, you know developmental state, and I think the SACP has always been dishonest. There is no such a form of state, um, you know, in, in 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 Marxist science, right? Mm-hmm. Um, states are you know class organizations. you either have a bourgeois state, and of course, or you know, the worker state, and so on. And I think what policies government or the state advance at a particular conjunction is dependent on the interest of the capitalist class if their interest requires that the state intervene more actively to rescue them they will do that and i think i've already you know given example that this is a state that has a power to expropriate communities which are said to be unreasonable in their demand for military cooperation that are coming on their land wanting to mine their lands against their will and so on look at Col Colni They've effectively it. expropriated um you know the poor black community that has suffered injustice over decades. How do I justify it? jobs and the economy Why the same situation not apply to clover? God knows right So all what it clarifies is a class character of the ANC is a class character of the state and all what it clarifies is a need uh, an agent and a disparate need, for the working class to organize itself politically as well. What we need more than ever before is a mass political party of the working class that can be created and that will be resting on the trade unions and the millions of the members that they organized on community civics. I mean, you look at you know every community, there is a form of, organi- I mean, there is organizations. Either it's a mm-hmm. community forum, crisis committee, a local shutdown committee, which personify, or if you like, you know re, you know reflect the permanent state of revolt of working class communities and um, you know at their conditions uh, mm-hmm. particularly lack of service delivery jobs and all of that and so on but also young people that uh particularly since 2015 in that you know marvelous movement that was a feast fall and so on have been you know organized have been up in arms and of course that is also an important contingent that must bring as well as other movements that are responding, you know, to crisis of climate change, to explosion in gender-based violence and other. We must bring all of that under one umbrella. Um, Of course, we've got to rebuild our mass organizations, but Mm -hmm. part of those mass organizations is making sure that we put a program that can unite all of these struggles, struggles in communities, struggles in workplaces, in campuses, struggles against climate change, uh, against gender-based violence, against xenophobia against all of that under one umbrella but for a class to have a program in terms of how society should be run it also has to take its leadership of society and the only vehicle that historically has been forced is a vehicle of a mass I mean of a political party and that's the reason that we're saying what the situation requires is a mass political party of the working class on a socialist program to ensure that not only do we elevate the working class to political power But by that socialist program, we're able to take the commanding hearts of the economy and ensure that the economy is spent in the interest of the working class and poor majority in this country.
0: Hmm. On rebuilding mass organizations in South Africa, the trade union movement has been on a decline globally. Do you think that this strike can serve as a catalyst for galvanizing the trade union movement? And have you noticed, for example, in your organizing of clover workers with Kiwusa um, and from what you've seen from the activities of FAWU, is this something that is helping not only reach out to workers who are affected by the restructuring of Clover, but beyond in the food and manufacturing sector and and other sectors of society. I think one interesting aspect of, of this mobilization is also the way in which it can forge worker and consumer solidarity. So in terms of uniting work and community struggles, this is something that you can also appeal to to members of the community and say boycott Clover um, on top of other activities that you can you can take to pressurize the company to to seize what it's doing. So, do you think that this is, I think, as arguably the most um, you know the most significant protest action that South Africa has witnessed in in the last couple of years? Do you think this is going to to form a a, a galvanization of of the trade union movement? It is, and it has already done that, um, because
1: um, just think about it, right? When did you last have a very, I mean, a coordinated international day of action in support of the movement mm. in South Africa since the collapse of apartheid? I was there at Marikana, I was there in the manwalker strike. We didn't have, um, you know, the amount of coordinated international that we have received. I mean, on that day of international day of action against Clover, we had people protesting in three US cities, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York, uh, with comrades protesting at Sao Paulo in Brazil, uh, in Sweden, in Belgium. Um, I mean, three protests, um, you know, London, Lancaster, and I, I can't remember the other in UK, uh, with comrades protesting uh, in Nigeria, and number of countries across the, uh, across the world. Canada, you mentioned all of them, right? Mm. So what it has revived is, you know, traditions of international solidarity in a way that South African workers' movement has not been part to in a very long time, mm. that we are beginning to lose. And I think that's very important, that we've taken the issue of Palestine
2: mm-hmm. in a
1: way that, um, you know, because one of, the, one of the tragic feature of our movement is that we've become so accustomed to receiving solidarity and not giving it, right? Mm. And I think um, that Clover is probably the biggest pro-Palestinian movement happening in the world at the present moment. You know, for me, is a complete vindication um, of our stance and our protest uh, and our position on the takeover of miracle, but also um, vindication of a tradition, a proud tradition of working class solidarity. That slogan of "an injury to one is an injury to all," and that was never a slogan that meant just an injury to South African injury you know South, South African workers it was always an injury to a worker everywhere right mm. so um, the oppressed people of Palestine are us and we're them that's the way that we see right um, but also when did you ever have an a, you know a strike that has had you know um the movement uniting across the spectrum we are having a support not only of all the unions in Saftu that have mobilized for the strike Of course, more could always be done, but I think um, we've seen them in action during that day of action with NUMSA, with TAU, uh, with Kasavu, and we have, you know. And I mean, but also not just that, we are having KOSATU now, um, not only having the statement, but also being part of our war room. I can tell you, since the formation of SAF2, we have not had KOSATU and them sitting in a way that they've said. And the way that they are participating in joint planning, um, you know, uh, council for the purpose of taking this strike forward. And I'm in my discussions with comrades in in your call in 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 in, 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 in and, and other federations, is that there's a willingness. So this mm. strike has already begun to achieve unity in a way that no any other movement has done, right? Mm. Um we've also seen, I mean, you know, secondary actions that we have not seen before. Um the, the, the workers, I think is a dairy company organized by Kasavu, and um, the affiliate of a, a farm worker i mean farm workers of saftu um i i just forget the name of that company it's very important i think we should be able to, to 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 name it um workers took an action and 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 as a result uh, the company was forced to cancel a contract with clover which um wanted to outsource the production to them and especially for the purpose and during the course of the strike. Um, we've also seen unprecedented, you know, working class community solidarity in a way that we have not seen uh, in a long time, right? I, I day in, day out, I receive footages of people chasing, you know, Clover marketing groups out of their community, a rural community. Clover people were there to advertise their project and they said, no, you are not welcome here. We are in support of uh, striking clover workers and so on. And just individuals, um, just, you know, progressive people that have taken the stance, the unprecedented support that we have had. I mean, food parcels have been flowing uh, Mm -hmm. here in David, in Western Cape, uh, across the country. We've just been receiving that and so on. Number of, um, you know, food chains, I mean, you know, um, retail stores have refused to stock, um, you know, um, clover products. Um, some voluntarily out of solidarity with clover workers. Some because of an intense pressure um, of their own local communities. Clover brought multiple court actions to try to stop hashtag boycott clover campaign. That is how um, you know uh, intense the pressure of that campaign is, and that's big. Be- to an overwhelming working-class solidarity and support that has taken a much more active form in a way that I think um, I cannot recall any strike receiving in recent times. So I think this strike for me uh, is groundbreaking. It's also a demonstration more than all that um, we can fight back. And -hmm. and when we fight, we can be able to stop the capitalists because what is it that we've already achieved? Exactly. In Trova itself, right? Um, um, I mean, in August, the company sent us um, a notice um, of retrenchment uh, at uh, City Deep. Um, they were saying that drops of about 824 uh, workers were on the line. Now they are denying that they have changed, but I'll explain that in a second. But what they've done is that they want to replace uh, City Deep with um, the Atlas, mm-hmm. uh, a new at Atlas in Boxbeck. What is happening with the factory is that over 90% of the workers there are labor-broking. broken is very clear, they wanted to replace, you know, a, a permanent, um, full-time workers that are unionized with labor breaking precarious and non-unionized labor, right? Um, all of that has fell flat. The notice that they've sent was saying 824 workers are likely to be rendered redundant. Now. Uh, having postponed the matter and realizing that they blundered, because we wanted to bring all the co- uh, all the dispute under one uh, umbrella, they now withdrew that notice. When they returned the notice uh, in February, the notice was saying only nine workers will be affected. Now that's you know is a major victory and a concession. As I'm talking to you now, um, again they have offered to reinstate all those workers that were dismissed, but they are also offering to pay their full salaries at least for eight months. We are rejecting that. And of course, you are saying that uh, we can only review negotiation uh, wages um, for the whole duration of, I mean, at the end of the collective agreement, which if it's going to be two years, it must be two years for all the workers, right? So, and that has already inspired, um, you know, because this strike has concentrated the minds um, of all classes, by the way. You know, mm-hmm. the PTS of to made a point, I'm told during the presentation, that what Clover has already done, is what the Clover Strike has done effectively is to put moratorium on retrenchments across the country. And many companies, I know that they wanted to retrench, all of them are holding back, looking at the outcome um, of what comes out of Clover. Because what we achieve at Clover is going to be a benchmark um, for the workers and for the bosses. If we win against the against the factory closures, no any other worker would accept that. Right? If we lose, it will be a disaster for the whole movement. It will, if you like, um, be condoning the capitalists to carry on as they've in the past decades where the whole burden of the economic crisis and now of COVID is being offloaded on the shoulders of the workers and the working class people in general. So I think we've drawn the line sharply on the sand, we've taken a stand, and I think this is a fight that Every working class and progressive person in this country and across the world must support because what we achieve here is going to have repercussions for the movement at large in this country. And I suspect um, many other people across the world will be inspired um, by the fight. And of course, if we are defeated, they'll be demoralized equally. Mm.
0: So what comes next? What confrontations can we expect and how can regular people support And participate in this? I think victory will be ours, but how can we mobilize and where can people go in order to to do their part, in order to ensure that victory can be ours?
1: Yes, victory is far from secure. There's a lot of things that we still need to fight around, right? Mm. Um, As I said, Clover is not offering uh, full wages of those workers for the whole duration of two years and and permanently they are saying that um, they would cut them by 20% after eight months. Now, we can accept that, right? There are factories that are closing across the country and so on. I think my view is that those factories need to be occupied, right? They need to be occupied and and we are able then to launch a campaign against the background of that occupation to say government must take them over, but also we must demand that uh, Clover itself, which by the way, has against the background of the strike, agreed to hand over those factories to government and the workers. But it must invest enough money because um, they are saying that they are off- they were saying they are offering ten million. Yeah. Now they said fifty million. But we require investment on the scale of hundreds of millions, if not billions, to recapitalize those particular streets and ensure that we retain the manufacturing capacities in those particular um, 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 towns and so on. So, I think um, you know, community activists need to come and support the workers on the picket lines. In Clayville, in PE, you know, in Western Cape, um, Paro, I mean, Milnerton, um, but also in Lichtenberg and, and in Bolukwane and, and other areas where there are similar demonstrations, Deep Deep and all of that. We, we need, um, you know, uh, communities to continue pressuring, uh, pressurizing their local retailers, not to stock, um, you know, clover products. And, and where they can, of course, um, to be able to, you know, put the, you know, leafless and others, um, to educate public that these are products of scape labor, a labor that is employed to defeat the legitimate demands of the workers uh, against job losses, against factory closures, and of course, you know, um, for decent minimum wages in terms of conditions of employment that are under attack with uh, a 20% wage cuts and other brutal restructuring measures that are taking place, including reduction of uh, van assistance from two to one, which would mean that a worker basically that, um, you know, is driving, is a driver working, you know, from or driving the van from seven o'clock in the morning all the way to Limpopo uh, until late afternoon, will have to, in addition uh, to driving, have to be loading off the merchandise uh, because we'll only be having one assistant instead of two. And, and I can go on and on about other measures that they wanted to implement. A flexible labor by which they mean that, um, you know, a driver can be made to clean, uh, can be made to do a security duties, a compulsory um, work on public holidays and Sunday. So what Clover wants to introduce is a, a most brutal form of slavery that we have not seen at least since the end of apartheid. And I think we have to hold them on their tracks. And I think so far the strike, has done that on some issues, but we need more solidarity. We need more community activists on the picket lines. We need more community activists going to the malls, going to the retailers, and of course, making sure that boycott clover is intensified, but also we need donations. Um, you know, Lenin says that money is a sinew of war. Napoleon says the army march on his stomach. So we need that to be able to keep the workers on strike on picket lines. And I think every donation, and we published, our banking details. Uh, comrades can find them on our you know, Facebook pages, um, on our you know, um, you know, uh, other media platforms. Um, but we are saying that every cent count because it's not just about the quantity, it's about the quality of sacrifice. Every worker, every community activist, every progressive person who donate what cents and rents, they count because they tell us that we are not alone and we are having people in this country that are supporting us
0: well to our listeners you've heard the clarion call uh, we will share those links to donate those links to get involved on our social media channels as well and you've heard the message boycott Clever make sure it's not in your fridge make sure it's not in your cupboards. Mamet thank you so much for coming onto the program thank you very
1: much and thank you very much for your solidarity and support and you know your are listeners as well
0: if you've not been if just a reminder that I've been talking to Mametle sebe who is the president of the General Industries Workers Union South Africa as well as a National Committee member of the Workers and Socialist Party thanks again Mametle and keep well and good luck we'll be supporting you in whatever way we can as well as all of the striking workers
2: thank you and uh pleasure being here we're on to
0: So if you have been paying attention to what has been happening on the African continent, and particularly in its representative bodies such as the African Union, you would have known that since July of last year, there's been an ongoing controversy over the decision by AU Commission Chairperson Moussa Faki Mahomet to unilaterally accredit Israel. And that's split the AU since. And there's been a couple of meetings, a couple of attempts to resolve the ongoing issue. And joining us on the program today to discuss exactly what is going on and how we should make sense of it is Naeem Gina, who is currently the executive director of the Afro Middle East Center, which is a research institute based in Johannesburg, dedicated to studying the Middle East and North Africa, as well as relations between that region and the rest of Africa. He previously worked as the director of operations for the Freedom of Expression Institute in Johannesburg, and he also taught political studies at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. So, Naeem, thank you so much for joining the program. Thank you, William. So, I wanna I wanna start by talking about what happened recently uh, on the fifth and sixth of February. African leaders convened at the AU headquarters in Addis Ababa. It was the first in-person meeting of the African Union since COVID started, and. It was for the Heads of State Summit, and Israel's accreditation was one of the key items on the agenda. Uh, Could you summarize what went down? Because it was quite an eventful uh, showdown.
2: Yes, so uh, leading up to the uh, meeting of the 5th and 6th, of course, which was uh, Heads of State Summit, um, a number of things happened. One was that after the July decision last year by Musafaki Muhammad, Um, There was lots of lobbying uh, from both sides on the continent around the issue, leading up to an October meeting, uh, the the Executive Council meeting, which is the foreign ministers of uh, African states. There the matter was raised and objections were were made to Musafaki's decision. Um, The the debate didn't reach a conclusion, it was um, actually uh, quite rudely uh, uh, cut short and the matter was then referred to the Heads of State Summit. So between October and February, um, that kind of lobbying continued. By the morning of the 6th, uh, that Sunday morning, uh, 6th of February, of the meeting, the second day, um, there was an understanding uh, by the various main role players that they didn't want a situation where this became a huge debate, and where it might go to a vote. Um, As you know, William, the tradition in the AU is that they make decisions by consensus. Mm -hmm. Uh, So forcing something to a vote uh, needs to be extremely serious uh, for that to happen. And uh, no one really wanted that to happen because they believed that it would split the AU down the middle. So they met on the morning of the 6th um, in a closed meeting And in that meeting, two decisions were made. One was that they would set up a committee that would uh, deliberate on the matter, investigate um, the the granting of the accreditation, investigate the complaints, and arrive with some recommendations that would be made uh, to the heads of state at some uh, future point. The second decision was that while the committee was deliberating, Musafaki Muhammad's decision of July last year, accrediting Israel, <coughs> accrediting Israel, would be suspended. In effect then, the accreditation of Israel would be suspended until the committee reaches a decision. So this was what was decided and resolved uh, Sunday morning. Um, the news started uh, uh, going out about it. Of course, the resolutions are only um, drafted later and read out in the evening. Uh, but the news started coming out anyway, particularly from uh, Algerian sources, uh, saying that this was the decision that was made um, just before lunchtime. It seems, and you know, we were following the media quite closely around it. Um, it seems that just before lunchtime, um, the Israelis uh, finally decided on how they would respond um, and began a whole kind of um, um, lobbying campaign. Um, which in the AU includes a whole range of things, um, incentives, brown envelopes, etc. cetera. Um, but the Israelis began a whole lobbying campaign and by after lunch, uh, things had suddenly changed. By after lunch, um, it was announced that there would be a debate on the issue, not on both the, the decisions from the morning, but particularly on the question of whether last year July's decision would be suspended. So. Will Israel's accreditation be suspended, or does it continue being accredited while the committee sits? Um, Short debate took place on that Sunday afternoon, uh, during which time, uh, Marki Saal, the chairperson of the AU now, as well as one or two other heads of state or deputy heads of state, uh, repeatedly uh, made the call for the meeting to end quickly so they could go and watch the AFCON finals. and ultimately the chairperson ruled that the accreditation from july last year will not be suspended and so israel remains accredited um of course for for uh, the delegations of south africa algeria namibia nigeria in particular these being the main kind of uh, objectives to the accreditation um this was um, they were they were they were pretty shocked it, it's clear uh, because they believed that uh, once a decision had been made in the morning, that was the, the decision that would stand. Mm. Is
0: it correct to say that the AU's decision to accredit Israel granted observer status is unprecedented in the sense that it would be the first time that the AU has invited a non-African entity to form part of its community? And and why did this happen in the first place? Why? does Israel seek to be accredited?
2: Okay, so so there is a category uh, in terms of the um, in terms of the A.U. Constitutive Act and uh, various regulations and policies, etc. Um, of what are called accredited non-African states. Mm. Um, so these are not members of the A.U. Uh, they are non-African um, and they get accredited. Um, it, it, it's not called observer status technically. Um, they they just given accreditation, and what that allows them to do is a couple of things. One is that they are allowed to attend uh, opening and closing sessions of meetings such as the Executive Council, the Heads of State Summit, and and other such meetings. Secondly, that they are entitled to receive certain forms of documentation uh, from the AU Commission Chair that they would otherwise not receive, and um, and thirdly that uh, such accredited uh, states could be called upon by the A.U. Commission Chair uh, to sit in on certain meetings dealing with p- uh, particular issues. Um, so, so, there are scores of, I think there's about 90 or so uh, non-African states that are accredited in this way. So, um, accrediting Israel would not be uh, unprecedented in that regard. Your second question, why would Israel want this? Um, I mean, of course, there's the historical thing which Israelis would say. They were, they were an observer at the OAU, and therefore that should continue, etc. Neither uh, None of that is uh, here nor there. Uh, the important thing for Israel, however, is that since um, 1973, um, when the OAU took a very harsh resolution against Israel, um, Israel has been uh, um, uh, lobbying very strongly on the continent, building um, bilateral relations with, with various states, etc. Um, and, uh, um, and, and it's been wanting uh, since, since 2002 when the AU was formed uh, to get back into that, to give it in a sense greater legitimacy on the continent. So there's two things around this, uh, three things. One is that being accredited to the AU in this way means that it is able to attend these open meetings, the opening and closed sessions, but more importantly, that its delegation is able to be in the corridors, in the lobbies Mm. of the hotels where these meetings take place, which is where many of the kind of, uh, much of the influence uh, in the EU happens, many of the political and diplomatic deals are done. It gives them that kind of access. Um, So, uh, uh, you know, to ensure, for example, that in future, resolutions about israel from the au are blunted uh compared to what they were in the past i mean even last year may Musafaki muhammad himself um made an extremely strong statement against israel's attack on on Gaza and on on jerusalem one can imagine that moving forward um those kind of statements could be blunted so that's that's the um, uh, that's the one thing it gives them that kind of access and also you know um if there was a, an AU task team, for example, um, dealing with um, whether Israel's practices are or constitute apartheid, um, you can imagine that the Israeli delegation will uh, ask the AU Commission Chair that they should be part of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, prior to the accreditation, they would have no standing to to ask for that. Mm-hmm. Secondly, that um, Israel has been very concerned for years, for decades that Africa usually in multilateral uh, fora, fora, such as the uh, UN General Assembly, Human Rights Council, other places, um, that uh, Africa usually votes as a bloc, which means that uh, a resolution or draft resolution comes up at the UNGA to condemn Israel's settlement policies, uh, which is a routine thing, you know, happens all the time. Uh, Usually, 54 African states will vote together. On that issue as with most other issues Um, and Israel has been wanting to find a way in which it can break that block that unified uh, vote uh, in this forum Um, being a credit to the uh, to to the AU now allows it to say that, uh, you know, just like Palestine is a credit to the AU, so is Israel, and the AU believes in a two-state solution, and therefore, for for that kind of a situation, it should not be taking a one-sided approach. Similar kind of rhetoric that was used uh, in South Africa, actually, um, um, when the South African government thought that it could mediate between Israelis and Palestinians. Um, In that way, um, in a sense, moving uh, the African bloc to a, a to a situation where states uh, can individually vote on on these uh, issues about Israel, thereby successfully uh, breaking the block. Mm-hmm. Um, and thirdly, while while this is not entirely required, of course, that uh, it could enhance um, Israel's relationships uh, on a bilateral level with different states, but more importantly with regional economic communities. Uh, some of which has already, I mean, uh, its relation with ECOWAS, for example. And what it's now succeeding in doing is penetrating the one block on the continent, one REC, that has been to some extent in, impenetrable uh, for, for Israel in this regard, and that is SADC. Um, SADC is now split uh, on the issue as the heads of state summit and the executive council meeting showed. Mm.
0: I, I want to talk about what you mentioned just now, which is this 1973 Charter, the African Charter on Human and People's Rights, uh, adopted by the then Organization for African Unity and that preamble you referred to read as follows, it committed the OAU to eliminate colonialism, neo-colonialism, apartheid and Zionism. Now, this meeting preceded uh, Amnesty International. Uh, declaring that it finds Israel to be an apartheid state and it now is the third major international human rights organization to do so following Human Rights Watch and B'Tselem, which is based in Jerusalem. Uh, Is there any chance that this could sort of lead to a degree of apprehension on the part of those countries which were, were starting to embrace Israeli accreditation or in their making their calculus, they're they're much more interested in in prioritizing what they what they stand to gain at a bilateral level.
2: Um, just a correction: the the amnesty report was released uh, before just, oh, just wow. before the meeting. Yeah, my uh, yeah. Uh, no, it's not going to make a difference. Look, um, the 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 one—I mean, there are many—but the one difference between the character of the ou and the AU. Um, is that the OAU was very much um, in the nature the, you know, the, the, the OAU Charter, for example, you see the language there, very much in the nature of the post-colonial uh, African state. Um, still talking about uh, anti-colonialism, still talking about liberation, South Africa was still, um, uh, from their perspective, uh, uh, colonized, there was apartheid, uh, etc. So that was the language, that was the kind of sentiment, and uh, many of the heads of state at the time were um, heroes of various liberation struggles. We've we've come a long way, and I don't say that necessarily in a positive way, we've come a long way from then on the African continent uh, to today where the priorities for many political elites on our continent in various countries are um, self-enrichment, um, um, the best interpretation, perhaps, we could say, is national interests. But for many, it's, it's self-enrichment. And if we if we trace the way that uh, Israel has been interacting on the continent, um, how these political elites in some of these countries uh, gain from mining contracts, from security contracts, etc., uh, by allowing Israel in, um, we, you know, we, you you could also you don't have to wonder much about how, within about uh, three or four hours, Israel was able to, at the AU Heads of State Summit, get a decision changed. Um, What uh, military and uh, um, spyware, et cetera, deals did they make um, with these heads of state in those three or four hours uh, to to get that changed? I mean, uh, Senegal, for example, and the president of Senegal is now the chair of uh, of the AU, um, just a few weeks before um, the, the heads of state summit announced a massive um, military trade deal, which basically arms purchases uh, from, from Israel. Um, those arms purchases might be through particular private, uh, so-called private companies, but they are done as part of a, a very strategic foreign policy uh, by the Israeli state. So this, in, in the main, this is how um, various political elite elites on the continent are relating to the issue of Israel or the U.S. or whatever. It's no coincidence then that the three big and uh, noisiest uh, states on this issue on the continent are Algeria, South Africa and, um, and, and Namibia. Uh, Namibia and South Africa being, in a sense, the, the last two colonies to be freed. Um, Algeria is still in in some ways uh, living within that kind of um, idea of of a post-colonial state. Um, And and these uh, these are the ones that are making the most noise. For the others in the main, um, and I I include, um, I mean I shouldn't have to say this, but I include uh, North African states. Um, Morocco is one of the strongest supporters of this decision, Morocco, DRC, and Rwanda. Um, Egypt at this meeting said nothing, at the Executive Council meeting made a statement which said nothing. Um, So they they effectively supported it, uh, supported Israel's accreditation. So it's it's that that is the more important thing. Um, You can have another ten reports um, that say that uh, what we are looking at is apartheid, is uh, colonialism, Um, You you could say it's uh, the same kind of colonialism as as in the past. Uh, You could even have a report uh, for whatever that might be worth that says that it's akin to Nazism. I don't think it's going to make a difference to these um, uh, political elites, unfortunately. I mean, I'm giving a very uh, kind of cynical view. But unfortunately, the past few years have shown that many of the political elites on our continent Um, including in terms of the international relations with other states, the US, China, et cetera, um, are in it for either personal interests or at best um, the interests of their countries over their values. Mm -hmm. So where where
0: does this leave prospects for Palestinian solidarity on the continent? In a kind of way, it's it's forced us to look to ourselves pretty much for, for where resistance should emerge from and not relying on uninspirational leaders, as would have been the case in the past. And these efforts are starting to germinate on the continent. Uh, what do you think the challenges they might face will be? And and how do we galvanize continental solidarity, starting from,
2: from behind, as you've just described? So I think we, we should uh, look at this at two levels. One is at the level of uh, governments and political elites, and the other at civil society, and then how they relate to each other. I mean, at, at the level of governments, you know, one of the things that was raised in this Heads of State Summit is the shocking number of coups that have taken place on our continent just in the past year or so, mm. right? Um, and I, I don't remember that any of the people who spoke on this uh, mentioned uh, Tunisia, for example, mm. which is undergoing a coup right now, mm. uh, or Egypt, which underwent a coup in 2013, and we're still living with the with the uh, structures formed out of that coup. Um, But but the reason I'm raising this is because the level of solidarity on our continent now is really related uh, to the level of democracy. Uh, The more democracy there is, the more citizens are able to have influence on the state and on on governments, the more chance there is that uh, governments will act according to democratic values and will be concerned about what the people feel uh, rather than their own interests. And so, you know, the move in the direction of, uh, of being more sympathetic uh, to Israel in a sense follows this kind of uh, trajectory as well. Um, so, uh, you know, once we start much more strongly challenging uh, to regain democratic space on the continent, um, I think we'll also see that this kind of mood could start changing uh, as well. Uh, so you see the link between civil society and uh, and and uh, the states and political elites at the civil society level, and this is one of the reasons why uh, in many of our countries, um, we uh, on on the continent, we thought of Palestinian solidarity in terms of what what the government said about yeah. uh, Palestine or about uh, about Israel, um, because civil society on these issues was was, was pretty weak now when the government becomes everything uh, and you know i mean egypt has no civil society uh, any, anymore right so you can't even talk about that the government is every the state is is everything when the state becomes everything um, then you start scrambling to say, okay where's the palestinian solidarity because if you looked only to the state then you're in trouble but what has uh, what has been germinating for, for a while, you know, through various for uh, world social forums and, and other kinds of uh, uh, such uh, places, is uh, a growing kind of um, uh, feeling uh, within the continent that there needs to be a much stronger civil society um, uh, solidarity uh, for with, with Palestine. And so uh, somewhere around the beginning of last year, it was around March or April, um, there was formed a new organization on the continent um, which called itself the Pan-African-Palestine Solidarity Network. Um, it has members from um, around 20, 25 uh, organizations on the continent. Um, it was formed with this very strong desire to to network solidarity on the continent because at the civil society level, it was weak, etc. And then, in a sense, was given uh, a bonus uh, by having given a cause to fight for mm. uh, in July. Um, and so, a lot of the energy of the network over the past uh, six months or so has been focused on the AU-Israel issue. Uh, that network, uh, partly, I would say, because of this uh, AU issue, has strengthened over the past uh, few months. Um, next month, in March, it's going to have uh, a conference in Senegal, um, which, which is the AU chair now. Um, which will be a public conference uh, as well as a strategy planning meeting to look at how the network might be built on the continent etc i really think that there's a great amount of potential in this network you know one or two of its members um, are are small organizations that have just started Mm -hmm. um, but are really keen uh, uh, on talking to other affiliates networking, basically, uh, taking strength from each other. Um, many of the people uh, in in these solidarity groups, you know, I'm, I'm not going to mention names, but the socialist forum of such and such country um, are also involved with the pro-democracy action in their own countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in this way, you're seeing uh, a sense of, of a linking of, if we want democracy in our countries, then we also have to be, uh, pro Palestinian and express that solidarity so i think that at the at the civil society level the terrain certainly is changing um and will continue changing for the rest of this year and and moving forward um, and the hope of course is that that strengthening at civil society level can uh, have some impact and will influence uh, also uh, governments and the political elites on our continent mm. i want to maybe as a
0: as a closing question thinking about I think what you're what you're pointing to is that we need a, a broader process for the reconstituting of civil society on the continent in order to create the conditions for Palestinian solidarity to flourish. And what I find as being a you know very profound, I think, question to think through in relation to sort of the frequency of coups that have been occurring on the continent is that not in all cases, but in a lot of cases, a lot of these coups and maybe, you know one would need to find proper empirical data to actually gauge this. But there's, there's a degree of not so much public support, but I think a kind of a kind of openness to to the coup trajectory that has been happening, a, a sort of uh, I don't want to call it a, a repudiation of liberal democracy, but a sense in which a lot of people feel like liberal democracy has has not succeeded uh, in parts of Africa. So, you know, faced with that, how do we, you know, how do we sort of reconstitute civil society when, when facing this challenge? How do we make the case for, for liberal democracy and, you know, a liberal democracy uh, that we distinguish from the way it's been neoliberalized and the way in which it's failed to deliver economic goods to people? And how do we make that linkage between that and, and the issue of Palestine solidarity? I know a very big question that's all over the place. Uh, but I'm curious for your thoughts.
2: Well, I think p- part of the problem is that <clears throat> many of us, you know, as we move further away from the, from the days of uh, independence of, of various states on the continent, um, many of us began to um, uh, embrace uh, in a way that, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was projected as there is no alternative in a sense, um, liberal democracy. Um, rather than uh, the kind of democracy that we spoke about before liberation, um, and uh, particularly in, in terms of economic relations, etc., cetera. Um, and, and that kind of understanding led us down a particular path. Uh, the coups that are now taking place are not something that just sprung up. Uh, they come about as a result of the marginalization of people as a result of liberal, liberal democracy, it's neoliberalism, it's uh, uh, um, associated ways in which uh, elites could enrich themselves mm-hmm. at the expense of the people, etc. Um, I mean, that, that kind of, uh, um, those are the real consequences of entrenching capitalism on, on our continent. Um, and so that led to the kind of marginalization, disaffection, et cetera. Um, and so you're seeing that there are in many of these countries where coups are taking place, at least small groups of people um, that that support that. But let me also issue a note of caution here. In many of the countries, uh, that support is uh, also manufactured and is played up to make it look much more than it actually is. Mm. Um, also, um, you know I mean this requires a country by country uh, analysis certainly. But also, uh, with such an analysis, we should look at the number of uh, states that have uh, have had coups in the past year, how many of those coup leaders have been trained, for example, by the United States. There's a good set of articles now uh, in the U.S. exactly about this, looking at the coup leaders in some of these countries and what kind of training they received um, uh, by, by the U.S. Um, and and so you know what 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 is it that makes a U.S. trained uh, military general want to undertake a coup in in a country where we are saying there is uh, there is democracy? Well, certainly it's not serving particular objectives. So I think that that these kinds of things uh, need to be carefully looked at. I don't believe that uh, populations as entire populations have rejected democracy or believe that democracy doesn't work for them. What they have rejected is the notion that, that uh, this form of democracy can lead to a situation where certain elites get enriched, um, where the poor become poorer, where inequality increases. I mean, we, we don't have to look uh, beyond our borders, right, William? I mean, this is, we're talking about South Africa here. Um, where where the former dispossessed uh, become part of the elites so or a small slice of them um, at the at the expense uh, of the poor part of the former dispossessed. Uh, I mean, the worst inequ- inequality is between uh, rich black and rich uh, rich black and poor black people. Not between rich white and poor black people. So, uh, so this is the thing. This is what people are rejecting, and in our own country as well, that's what people are rejecting. Not the notion that they have a say in uh, in 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 the affairs of, uh, of of our state. People, in fact, uh, would like more say um, at a very direct level. Um, you know that that affects them directly in terms of their children's education, etc. Not less say. Mm. Naeem, thank you, that was, that was so well put. Uh, and thank
0: you so much for, for coming onto the program to talk about uh, the AU, Israel and Palestine. I've been chatting with Naeem Gina, who's currently the executive director of the Afro Middle East Center, a research institute dedicated to studying the Middle East and North Africa, as well as relations between that region and the rest of Africa. Naeem, thank you so much once again.
2: Thanks, William, for a lovely conversation.